Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. This is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're jumping in with us for the first time on the plan, we are on day 218. And finally, if you have any questions that you would like us to answer, uh, we'll do a Q&A segment at the end of the episode if we get questions that come in, and you can send those questions to either info at grove.church, just make sure you use the subject line of podcast question, or you can direct message the Grove Church Facebook page or Instagram. Uh, again, just make sure to clarify you're asking a question for the podcast, because if you don't, you know, we, we might just answer it there, and that's no fun to not do that off of the air. Uh, well, beloved listeners, this is our second week without Aaron. He is still on vacation, so last week we introduced you to, well, I guess if you go to the church you already knew them, but you know, uh, Hunter Shaw, who is the worship pastor here. And this week we'll introduce you to someone who you might not know, even if you come to the church, cause we're down in the dungeon together on Sundays. This is Nathan Stumpf. How's yeah. it going? Hey, good. It's going good. Is it production director? Is that your official? I believe so. It's changed a couple times, but For I sure. think that's what we landed on. Hey, you know, it's a, it's a great title. Good deal. He says that because he made the title. I'm pretty sure. No, I I was uh, I don't I just print the titles. I just oh. make the little placards. So the titles come from on high, and by on <laughs> high I mean the executive team. <laughs> so there you go. Got it. Uh, do you want to take like a quick thirty seconds? Just you know, tell us about yourself. What what do you why, why do you like the Bible? All of that jazz. Oh yeah, I mean, why do I like the Bible? I feel like that's gonna that's gonna give you a really churchy answer. I love the Bible because I love Jesus, but I also think that uh, the Old Testament is something that that Evan and I were talking about this week with um, a couple of the other people at the church. And we're like, oh yeah, I love the Old Testament. I love getting nerdy about it. And somebody just said, no, that's an unpopular opinion for a lot of people. But to, for me, I think uh, understanding a lot of what we're going to be talking about today really points you to Jesus and uh, makes makes the gospel, the good news to us even more applicable than um, it would be if you just understood the New Testament. So, For sure. No, yeah. I love it. I'm excited about this episode. It's going to be it's gonna be a blast. It's fun. Uh, it's been fun having you guys on here. Uh, so we're going to jump in. Uh, listeners, fair warning. This is going to be a real depressing week. <laughs> like, is. It's not. It's not fun. It's just everyone's, everyone's dying. <laughs> Jerusalem's falling. It's just, you know, it's a whole... It's a whole thing. Uh, there's a few bright spots, but they will be few and far between this week. Uh, so let's kick off. We're going to continue on in Jeremiah, where we're actually going to spend we're going to spend a lot of time in Jeremiah this week. Uh, first off, we're in chapters 19 through 20. So after the fun reign that uh, you know the fun that was the reign of Josiah that we talked about last week, we're back to the bummers of Judah's coming fall. Uh, Jeremiah 19 shows God command Jeremiah to take a potter's vessel and break it into pieces. And this was to demonstrate how God was to break apart the kingdom of Judah beyond repair. Um, it is one of those things where, you know, Jeremiah, for all of his kind of bummers that he has to go through as a prophet, specifically living through um, the actual fall of his home, at least he doesn't have to do too many like super weird things. Like some, like Isaiah and later Ezekiel's got a lot of like, you know, a lot of really odd things that God asked them to do. Although actually we'll get to We'll get to a lowing cloth incident here in a second, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, that's that's called a tease for listener listeners. Uh, so Jeremiah shares the terrifying horror that is to come during the siege of Jerusalem, going as fa so far as to say that the people will resort to cannibalism while inside the walls. Um, it's truly horrifying stuff, and it's and we know that that happened as well. It also happens. Um, in the second fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. So it's, yeah. And, it's, and, it, and this is something that we don't really think about today just because it's not a part of modern warfare, really. But a siege is a really ugly thing. 
uh, you're trapped inside of a city. You're most likely are running out of food. You're running out of water. Um, and the reason you would do a siege is to not have to fight. You're just essentially waiting for your enemy to starve to death or surrender uh, because they're about to starve to death. And so being one of the people trapped inside of a city is, is one of the most horrifying things in the ancient world. It's, it's not good. Um, in chapter 20, Jeremiah is persecuted by a priest named Pashur who locks him in stocks for a day. Uh, when Jeremiah is released the next day and uh, Jeremiah, he tells him that he's going to be taken to Babylon and die there. So not great for old Pashur. Uh, in fairness, that's the fate of a lot of people. <laughs> that Jeremiah is going to run into. So I don't know how exceptional it is, but basically Pashur is like, guys, everything's going to be fine. Don't even worry about it. This guy's full of it. And then Jeremiah is like, no, you're, you'll see. You'll, you know, you'll, you'll know one day. I love that he kind of like quips back to him with the same thing that he's been saying for a long time. He's like talking to the people of Israel. He's like, hey, you're all going to be taken to Babylon. And then this guy kind of abuses him for a second. He's like, you're going to be taken to Babylon. He's like, okay, Jeremiah. You can't, right. you can't keep him quiet, that yeah, Jeremiah. No. He knows. Uh, and then the rest of chapter 20 is a poetic reflection on the emotional state that Jeremiah is in. Um, he's not only wait, knowingly waiting for the destruction of his home, which again, like sometimes we just kind of read through things. We don't take a moment to actually think about what that would be like. Like imagine Jeremiah knows that the nation he loves, the people he loves, the city that he loves are going to be destroyed, killed, or sent into exile. Um, that would be an incredibly heavy emotional thing to be carrying with you for years of ministry. Um, and then he's also being persecuted for sharing the truth of Yahweh. Um, we see this in verses seven through eight. He says, oh Lord, and this is a very famous verse for Jeremiah. Oh Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. You are stronger than I and you have prevailed. I have become a laughing stock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. And jumping ahead to verses 14 through 18, he says, uh, cursed be the day on which I was born, the day on which my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, a son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon, because he did not kill me in the womb, so my mother would have been my grave, and her womb would be forever great, or in her womb forever great. Why did I not come out from the womb to see why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? So yeah, it's very real. And I, I love this mm -hmm. about not just Jeremiah, I love this about the Bible, is that it's not shy about showing us the just depths of despair that people can fall into. Um, in this one, yeah, so you see Jeremiah is angry at God, and we see this kind of as a theme throughout different portions of the book of Jeremiah, where essentially he's just, I don't want this job anymore. Like, why Why am I doing this? Um, but then this passage specifically, it's very reminiscent of Job chapter three. And remember, we talked about this, I guess, at the very beginning of the year. Um, but Job's reaction to everything that he's lost is just crying out, saying, I wish I was never born, or if I was born, I, I wish I was still born. Why am I alive? Like, why are you giving me life just to have me walk through this amount of pain? And then Jeremiah, it's very, very similar uh, it, it are the themes that he's exploring here. So it's, yeah, it's again, it's just a bummer. And it's important for us to really think through the lens of Jeremiah as we're watching these things happen. Well, we're going to take a quick break from Jeremiah. Not a quick break. We're actually going to be here for a little bit because it's pretty uh, thick narrative. Uh, we're going to go to the book of Daniel. So this and this is one thing I think is important because I think as a kid in my head, I don't know if I was taught this or if I kind of just assumed, but I assumed the exile was one event. 
like Jerusalem falls and then everyone goes into exile. Like that's not the way it works. The, there was a multi, just like there's multiple returns that happen when they go back to Jerusalem, there's multiple exiles. And so uh, Daniel is a part of one of the first groups of exiles after, you know, Babylon, because we, and we read last week, Babylon has not destroyed Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is now very much a vassal state of Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar is, you know, he's he's the man in charge. He's the uh, he's the Putin to uh, Belarus's, what's that guy's, Lukashenko? Is that his name? So, I don't know, you know, the, like a little, like a little, a little bud, a little guy that, you know, the greater country dominates over, you know, world of, world affairs, you know, yeah. Okay. Sorry, listeners. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so uh, Daniel goes into one of these first ones. Ezekiel is another person who goes out earlier. Um, and then we'll see with Jer- Jeremiah when he goes into exile, spoilers for, <laughs> for that, that happens, uh, but Jeez, that's going to be Evan, a little, come on. I know people are like, is Jerusalem going to fall? I don't know, man. Uh, so getting over to the book of Daniel and we get a couple of really famous stories. Uh, when I say Daniel, you're going to think of three stories, and we're going to get two of those this week. Uh, he is one of the major prophets, and then he's also the first of two prophets, the other being Ezekiel, whose full ministry is in exile. Um, and so we don't we won't see that too much. Some of Jeremiah's ministry is in exile, but obviously most of it is pre-exilic. And then most of the prophets we see after are when the Jews are returning back to Jerusalem. So Daniel and Ezekiel have a very interesting perspective on God's people during this time. Uh, The book of Daniel begins in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, when Nebuchadnezzar takes some captives from Judah, and uh, Daniel is among a group of Jewish nobles who are brought to Babylon. This also includes Hananiah, uh, oh my gosh, I put Shadrach instead of his actual name. What an idiot. And I don't remember it off the top of my head. You could just go with VeggieTale names at that point. (laughs) Rackshack and Benny. Oh, dude, that takes me straight back. Chocolate bunny. <laughs> it's going to be great. Uh, so it's Hananiah, a guy whose name I can't remember, and Mishael. So spoilers, it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're given Babylonian names. What's interesting to me is they are known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, but Daniel is not known as Belteshazzar mm-hmm. in the book. He keeps he keeps Daniel. So, you know, a little bit, I guess, Daniel, if he wrote the book, he's given himself a little bit of extra, little bit of extra credit there. Uh, they arrive at the court. And uh, the king tasks Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, uh, which is a bummer way of saying servant, <laughs> of assimilating these men uh, to give them fine food. Uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse, and they say that they will not be defiled by the king's food. Uh, obviously, this would be a reference to the food is not in keeping with the dietary laws of the Old of the Old Testament, what we would call kosher today. Uh, they eventually convince Ashpenaz to let them eat only vegetables and water for 10 days to test it out. After the 10 days, the men are soups healthy and they are allowed to continue. So basically, Ashpenaz is like, I can't just give you water and vegetables. You're going to be frail and die. And Daniel's like, hey, you know, trust me, it's going to be okay. And vegetarians everywhere just clap their hands. They're like, that's right. <laughs> We can make, we can survive. <laughs> you don't need meat. I was reading this really interesting, uh, this really interesting article about, I don't know why I was reading about, it, it was like medieval health anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was talking about diseases that were specifically in the nobility because vegetables were seen so much as peasant food that they, if you had enough money, you only ate meat. That oh, was, man. that was it on bread. Um, and so there was like a bunch of things that they were susceptible to. So, you know, well-balanced diets. We understand a little bit more of it now. Daniel's ahead of his time. It's a good time, but. Anyway, uh, man, sometime later, so they continue on the court. They have favor. It's awesome. 
Sometime later, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he is disturbed by it. Uh, so he demands an explanation of the wise men and the Chaldeans, who at this point apparently have a reputation. So the Chaldeans, I should say, they're a subgroup of Babylonians. They're one of the, I guess you could almost think of them like a tribe of Israel. They're a tribe of Babylonians. Uh, famously in Habakkuk, God specifically talks about how the Chaldeans are the ones who are coming, even though it's going to be mm. the Babylonians as a whole. Um, but at this point, apparently they actually have a reputation for being able to interpret dreams and do some mystical stuff. So the Chaldeans are, you know, they're, they're pretty powerful here. Uh, and so he brings in all the wise men and he asks, he tells them, Hey, I have a dream. I had a dream. I need to know the meaning of it. And like, Oh yeah, sweet. Tell us the dream and we will give you the meaning. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, no, 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 I'm not going to tell you the dream. You need to tell me the dream and then tell me what it means. And they're saying, I, I, I should have written down exactly how they say it, but essentially it's like, there's not a man on earth who could do this. And Nebuchadnezzar, obviously, you know, be, most Kings, in the ancient world are very level-headed. And so Nebuchadnezzar makes a decision to kill every single Chaldean wise man. As male, anyone would. As, as, you know, as you do. Um, and this doesn't, sorry, I should say, this doesn't just include the Chaldeans. This is any wise man. So this would include Daniel and his friends. Uh, and so Arioch, the king's captain, comes to Daniel and he gives him, he's basically, hey, I, I need to take you in so we can execute you. Kind of a bummer day. Uh, Daniel requests an audience with the king directly. And then in a vision after uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego pray, uh, God reveals the dream to Daniel in a vision. He goes before the king. I'm going to read a long passage here just because every year there's some... When we go through the Bible, like as many times as we do, listeners, there's some parts where I try to mix it up about what we highlight. I can never not highlight this vision because it is so insane how it is fulfilled mm. pretty much like to the letter exactly, nothing vague about it. So let's talk about it for a sec. Uh, so Daniel is explaining the vision. He says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, lowercase k's, everybody, uh, to whom the God in heaven has already given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwelt, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. I imagine at that point, Nebuchadnezzar's like, yeah, yeah. I like this <laughs> you're, guy. You're darn straight. I'm the head of gold. <laughs> uh, he goes on though. He says, another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Oh, wow, that third kingdom of bronze is going to get pretty far. Uh, and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay." And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mix with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up 
the uh, so set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, and it shall bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and it, that it broke into pieces of iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation sure. Okay, so we're going to camp out on this for a few minutes. We're going to get nerdy about history. But it's like, okay, so listeners, here's one thing that's very important for you to know. Um, there are Daniel is in the Dead Sea Scrolls that are in Qumran. So what that means is that they are dated centuries before Christ. Um, and, and, and again, the reason I'm saying this is important is because sometimes you'll have people say, obviously, Daniel is written extremely late, almost right when Christ is around, because there's no way you could be accurate with all of these things. Uh, not the case. <laughs> Daniel, Daniel, Daniel is early. Um, obviously, we are uh, very conservative with our Bible dating. So I, I, I take Daniel as being written during the exile is when it's happening. But even if you're going to hold a very late date, you can't hold it to be so late that all of these things have happened and that Daniel's just kind of making up a vision here. Like that, that, that is not what's happening. Uh, okay. So he tells Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, you are the head of gold. And that right now at this point in the known world, I shouldn't say that I keep saying the known world. That's not true. In the region of Mesopotamia, Babylon is the major power. But very soon after this, there's another kingdom that rises up, and this would be the silver, and this is the Persians. And so we see it, spoilers, in the book of Daniel, we see this happen. Uh, the Persians take over and they expand the Babylonian empire. And it's a, it's, it's a, it started out as a lesser kingdom, just like Babylon was a lesser kingdom than Assyria. It's kind of the way it's going is these smaller um, kingdoms are rising up over these mighty empires, particularly when it seems like maybe they're stretching too far. Uh, after that, though, it says that there will be a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. This would be the Greeks, the Macedonians under Alexander the Great. Uh, and when I say rule over all the earth, it's not literally true, but it's about as close. It's about <laughs> as close as you can get at this point in human history. Though I believe the at, at its peak, Alexander's empire was larger than the Roman Empire. I think it's only the Mongolian. Was it empire. really? I believe so. I believe the Mongolian Empire is the only one that's larger. Um, but you know, don't 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 quote me on that, listeners. I could be wrong. Either way, it stretches from incredibly far west to I think he gets to India and he makes it in a little bit. So almost all of the known world, except for the kingdoms of India and China at this point, are are conquered. And and when I say the known world at that point, I mean um, obviously they they were aware that there were like tribal peoples in different areas, like the steppes and mm-hmm. uh, sub-Saharan Africa and all those places. But like the places with like the kind of the mighty kingdoms at the time, they're almost all taken over by Alexander the Great at this point. Uh, after that, there's a fourth kingdom, and it's talked about how it's had it's divided in two. It's a mixed kingdom a little bit. This would be the Romans. Um, And it talks about how it's going to eventually break apart and you're going to have some of it, which is going to stay strong and some of it, which is going to be very brittle. Uh, In 410, famously, Rome falls. And I think it's 470 is when they finally actually split apart. Um, And we talk about the Roman Empire falling and that kind of kicking off, uh, you know, what those snooty Italians in the Renaissance refer to as the Dark Ages, but we refer to as the Medieval (laughs) Ages because, you know, it wasn't, you know, Hey, they were great too. And it's not like everyone was a dummy at that point. Uh, But the Byzantine Empire is the Roman Empire in the East. And that does not fall until 1450 something. I should have, I should know that. Sorry, listeners. But um, it lasts another basically thousand years after the fall of Rome. And so Daniel is predicting these things with incredible accuracy. And even, even if you're holding that, let's say for a second, we didn't have the Dead Sea Scrolls and somehow it was revealed that this wasn't written until right before Christ. 
you're still predicting the fall of the Roman Empire and the way that and the way that it's going to happen. Um, and then Daniel says it is during those days, so the days of the kings of the Romans, that God will set up a kingdom that shall never fall. That's Jesus. So it's like it's I don't know. It's it's incredible to me. Like of all of the prophecy in the Old Testament, this one to me is the most faith building of just seeing wow, this is exactly fulfilled. It's not even controversial that these things are fulfilled. Um and how how early how early this is given and just how yeah, I, I, it's incredible that we have this book of prophecy that gives us such an accurate depiction of the way that the, these empires are going to work. Yeah, and the the gospel writers aren't shy about this comparison at all. Even when you take that line, the king of kings, you know, we immediately in our kind of Western Christian mindset immediately attribute that, oh, king of kings, that's Jesus. Right. But the reason why they were calling Jesus king of kings was comparing them to these, these ancient kings that ruled the world. And even um, our Lord and Savior was like a name for Caesar from the Romans. So oh. the, yeah, that's what, that's what they would call Caesar, our Lord and savior Caesar. And so when the gospel writers were attributing these names to Jesus, they were saying like, no, these kingdoms have fallen, but Jesus is the, this permanent kingdom. So they weren't shy about that. No, I love it. You learn, you learn something new every day. That's a, a good fun fact. Yeah. So we'll stop talking about the prophecy now, but again, listeners, I just, I just love it so much every year. I don't know if I'm ever going to not bring it up because it's, it's just incredible. Cool. Um, okay. So Nebuchadnezzar is in awe. And he declares that Daniel's God is the God of gods. Um, and also we're in Aramaic now, so which is kind of interesting. It, we, we're told like a little bit through that, I think it's when the king, call, he, the king calls the Chaldeans and it says they answered him in Aramaic. And then the book just switches to Aramaic after that. Oh, so there's a, there's a chunk of Daniel. Oh, sorry, I should say Aramaic is uh, a Semitic language. It would have been a very common language used in Babylon at the time. And then by the time of Jesus, this is probably what he spoke. Um, so it's kind of the, if Greek is kind of the fancy language of the educated and still the lingua franca of getting around, Aramaic would have been the local regional language where you can kind of get around with the surrounding nations at the time of Christ. So there you go. Fun fact, you can impress your friends at, at a cocktail party <laughs> and say, hey, do you know that part of the Old Testament's written in Aramaic and not Hebrew? So there you go. Uh, and so the reason I bring that up is because the proper name of God is not used. So we don't see Yahweh, which in our Bibles is Lord in all caps. So it's for the for a good chunk of Daniel, it's God now. Uh, I believe it. I should have written this down. I believe it switches back to Hebrew at some point in Daniel, but I don't remember when. Um, so obviously, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, incredibly impressed by this. He's like, wow, this your God is truly the God above all other gods. Um, so obviously he wouldn't do anything stupid immediately following this. Uh, so in chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar builds a gold statue of himself and he demands that all of the people of the world worship it. So, you know, a humble guy, this Nebuchadnezzar. Um, sorry, listeners who, who have watched the VeggieTales, it is not a giant chocolate bunny. It is in fact, it is in fact a golden statue. Um, my wife tells a story about how when she was a kid, she like loved the VeggieTales movie. So, you know, the bunny song was like the oh, bunny. Yeah the mm. boonie, but because she was like three or whatever, she would sing the poopy because she thought it was really funny. And then her mom was like, they were in a grocery store and she was just really badly singing. Her mom was like, stop it, stop it. So there you go. <laughs> She's, she just likes shapoopy, shapoopy, shapoopy. Uh, oh man. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse. Um, and it's interesting because we don't know where Daniel's at at this point. So I, I, I would assume he didn't 
fall, bow down and worship this. So maybe he's off on an errand or something. I don't know. I'm going to say judging by Daniel's character, it's safe to say that he did not bow down. Yeah, it's hard to say he caved here, but then later on didn't cave with uh, the other famous story, yeah. the lion's den, which that's not this week. At least I don't think, unless Nathan, you're reading it. But da- I don't think I'm not. Okay. Dave, uh, Daniel is not the the... The giving in type. I True. Don't know. He's a stubborn man in a good way. In, a, in, the, in the best way possible. Uh, so this is a very this is a very famous story. I would say this this and the lions none of the two like really famous stories from Daniel. Um, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down. Nebuchadnezzar puts out as the punishment like you will be thrown into a fiery furnace, which basically is it's just a giant. Um, I don't even know how to, how to say it, but basically where you can forge things. Uh, they're heating it up to incredibly. Is that the wrong way to say it? I'm trying to think. Of, <laughs> so forge. did you say furnace? Yeah, fiery furnace. Yeah, fiery furnace. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. This, this is what it is. You heat things up in a furnace. Yeah, all right. Because you could call it a forge. Oh, it's like, a, yeah, you don't like, I don't even know. Sorry, listeners. Well, I think when you're forging things, the-, the You're the, not in the, the furnace, but you're putting things in. Well, I think the furnace is called the forge, and then you just have an anvil, right? Oh, so is it's that just one? Like, Yeah, the hot part is, funny enough, I it was really cool. I got married a, a few months ago, and so for my bachelor party, they took me to this place in Seattle that you can go to if you're looking for a good time, Ooh. and you can forge your own knives out of horseshoes, and it's a good time. But yeah, the hot part is the forge, and then you take it out, and you just use the anvil. But I'm just learning. I'm just learning new Anyways, things every day. This is That was not helpful at all for this podcast. Super. Fun fact. No, hey, it was super important. Don't you, <laughs> don't you let anyone tell you otherwise. Um, okay, so Nebuchadnezzar tells them, hey, if you, if you do not bow down and worship, you're going to be thrown into this fiery furnace. Uh, and then we get this famous line, Shadrach, Meshach, sorry, this is Daniel 3, starting in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Uh, Pause there. Love that so mm-hmm. much because basically it's, hey, listen, we serve the one true God. He can get us out of this. And if he doesn't, shove it. Okay. We're not, we're not worshiping your gods. It's awesome. Which I got to wonder if Nebuchadnezzar is a little bit nervous because obviously early in the chapter, he's so fed up with the wise men that are interpreting dreams to the point where he's like, there's no way I'm going to tell you what my dream is because I don't believe you. He's already skeptical of those people. True. And then Daniel comes in and he's so specific. Like that whole dream interpretation is about as detailed as you could possibly get. So I can't help but wonder if Nebuchadnezzar is a little bit like, "Mm." I don't know. Maybe a little, I, little nervous. Maybe I should listen to these guys. Well, if he does think that, he doesn't give in to that. No. So he, well, he just made a golden statue of himself. He can't. You can't. You can't, you can't backstep on you that. Can't, you can't go back <laughs> once you've made the golden statue. You have to see it all the way through. Um, so ne- it says Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and he and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. These then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All three of the, all these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in case you're forgetting the names, we're just going to repeat it every verse, uh, <laughs> fell bound into the fiery furnace. Uh, so to pause there for a second, it's saying that it's literally so hot and the flames were so out of control that when they're throwing them in, the guards were consumed by mm-hmm. the flames and killed. So this is... This is intense heat that we're talking about here. Uh, this, I mean, this is, you know, 
dwarven forges at the height of Casa Doom. I'm telling you, mm. listeners, this is just insane. Mm. Uh, then the King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. And he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, this is true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son, a son of the gods. So we would call this a Christophany, listeners. And what we mean mm-hmm. is that this is probably Jesus. Uh, this is this is one of the most clear ones, especially when you're using the language of son of gods. But, you know, it could be an angel if you really want to, if you really don't want to be Jesus there. But I, I think it's Jesus. Uh, but yeah, they are, they are delivered. So luckily for them, I mean, I shouldn't say luckily because, you know, it would have been fine either way. But it's great for the story that it's not the second part where they say, even if we don't, we're not afraid of dying this way. God yep. straight up delivers them. And Nebuchadnezzar is again wildly impressed with with Yahweh and and how God is treating his people so obviously he would never do something really stupid immediately following this <laughs> uh, so we'll pick that up next week <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about good old Nebi <laughs> so going back into Jeremiah uh starting in chapter 7 Uh, It gives us a story of Jeremiah being commanded to stand in the doors of the temple and pronounce judgment. Uh, The people are told that if they repent now, God will allow them to still dwell in Jerusalem, which is kind of interesting. So um, Jeremiah famously... Last year, as we were reading through it, we realized that there's no part in Jeremiah where God is willing to relent from the destruction of Jerusalem. But there, but in this passage, at least, he's willing to at least say, after this happens, you can stay, you can still dwell here. And maybe, you know, maybe if I'm actually thinking about this, maybe this is saying Jerusalem won't be destroyed, but you will just continue to live as a vassal state. So I could be wrong in my assessment of that last one there. But either way, moot point, because the people don't take him up on it. Um, as the chapter goes on, the, the hypocrisy of the people is brought into view, including a passage where God declares that they have turned his house into a den of robbers. That's going to come up in a few mm, months. Sounds familiar. Sounds. Speaking of th- allusions to Christ that sound familiar. Uh, in the end, Jeremiah is commanded to not pray for the people because Yahweh is not going mm. to listen. He's told this a few times. And again, pause, think about that. God's literally saying, mm. don't bother praying for them because I'm not listening. It's, it's over. We're, we're done here. It, the end of chapter seven and the beginning of chapter eight show a picture of a valley of slaughter, which is going to take place upon the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, very graphic. It's just kind of destri- describing the destruction and the horror of what's going to happen. As chapter eight continues, we see a long section once again calling out the hypocrisy of Judah for existing in a state of perpetual black backsliding. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the God is very frustrated with the fact that he continually shows them grace. And they continually spit in the face of that. And he's even at this point, like if if they were afraid of like, hey, like, you know, maybe God means it when he says that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. They just watched Samaria yeah. be destroyed. Yep. Like it's not, it's not like it's it's God's been empty threats on this. Like they just watched Israel fall to Assyria and now it's under the thumb of Babylon. But for some reason the people in Jerusalem are just like, ah. It's not gonna happen. We have walls. Yeah. That's what that's <laughs> one thing no one else has thought of before. <laughs> oh man. Uh and then at the end of chapter eight and uh, into chapter nine, we see Jeremiah grieving for his people. Um, I just highlighted a couple of things that stood out to me here. This is verse one. It says, oh, that my head were waters and that my eyes were a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain mm-hmm. of the daughter of my people 
Verses seven through nine says, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully with his mouth. Each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans to am- an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Mm-hmm. And then verse 25 is, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh flesh. Um, and so the first verse I just want to highlight because again, it shows the depths of, de- of Jeremiah's grief. Um, the second couple, I thought they were very interesting because it's, it's, I think sometimes the way that we frame this section of the Bible is that God abandons his people. Mm-hmm. This is not true. Um, the deal is never that God is fully breaking covenant. You're not my people mm-hmm. anymore. I wash my hands of you. Um, the deal is that okay, you've broken covenant too many times and and Jerusalem is about to be destroyed, but I'm going to refine you through this. Yeah, and I think the way that we kind of can view the prophets, because they use such strong language and there's all this doom and gloom coming, it's really easy to see them angry. And to be fair, like they are angry for the most part because they're, you know, they're zealous for God's right. word and they're people disobeying. But um, what this is, this is a beautiful picture where you see Jeremiah just like pleading with his people, like, please come back to God. And I think that's also something that's important for us to keep in mind. That's the heart of God. Um, there too is like, yes, he's angry. Yes, people keep abandoning him. But the story the whole way through the Bible is God pleading with his people to come back to him. It's mm-hmm. it's not just angry. It's also um, heartbroken. Yeah, it's it reminds me, I had a conversation, this is years ago now, um, with a woman who... Um, whose husband had, had done some pretty terrible things and had ended up, had ended up leaving her. Um, and so I just kind of asked her at the end, it was like, you know, you're just kind of at a loss for words. It's like, mm-hmm. what do you want me to pray for? Um, and I was ready to pray like, God, like, you know, break his knees or something. You know what I mean? Like I was, I was pr- like yeah. listening to it. I was pretty angry. Um, but she said, I just, I just want him to come home, yeah. which is, it, that's, that's always stood out to me in that moment of just kind of a shadow of the heart of God, yeah. of all of the betrayals of his people, um, that at the end of the day, his attitude is just come home, just come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, like you said, it's a huge bummer that they, they, I mean, they eventually take him up on it. The post-exilic period is a really nice upswing that we get at the end of the Old Testament, but uh, it unfortunately takes the fall of their nations uh, in order to actually begin to take God seriously in those things. Yeah. Um, and then finally, the last verse is the days are coming when I will punish those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Uh, this is getting at the idea. It's a big theme explored in the prophets, but going through um, either the motions of sacrifice, keeping the festivals, um, circumcision was obviously a big rite of Judaism, uh, but having none of the heart behind it. Mm-hmm. So basically you would say like, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a Jew. It's kind of like the equivalent of like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I was yeah. baptized at one point, but not actually living anything like that. That's what he's talking about. Uh, as we get to chapter 10, it brings up again the all too common theme of, at this point of the vanity of idol worship. This is just this gets hammered home by all the prophets. Um, and this is a primary reason for the punishment of Judah, that they view Yahweh as one of the gods. They do not view him as the one true mm-hmm. God. And they keep trying to make this pantheon of gods that they're worshiping. And, and God has finally just had enough of it. And I, I, I can't remember if it's in chapter 10, I should have written it down, but the common refrain is... Hey, let those those other gods you serve. Let them save you this time. You know, I don't I don't have to do it. Let them let them stop Jerusalem from being destroyed. Yeah, that's something that I've been laughing at recently. Um, not laughing at because it's not a terribly funny thing, but um, when when you go on YouTube, and I don't know if you guys do this, I, I get 
a little bit nerdy about the Bible, so it is Evan. So you go and you watch apologists debate with with atheists, and both have really good points. But one of them that's becoming popular is like, well, did you know that uh, ancient Israel was actually polytheistic? And oh, everybody's yeah. like, oh. and it's like, yeah, like that's kind of the point of read, the entire Old Testament. Read it's the like, Bible. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I, I remember as a as a uh, as a kid. It was on the History Channel, I think. I saw a program like that, and it was like, you know, everyone says that it's basically the same argument that Jude or Israel and Jude were very polytheistic. Yeah. And then, like at, at the time, I was like, oh my gosh, I've been lied to. And then you realize, like, oh, like like you said, that's the point of the whole that, Old Testament that is, is that the they're polytheistic, and they need to stop it. Oh man. In chapter 11, God presents his case against Judah, uh, showing that they have broken covenant with him, and he goes through that he's offered them to be his people and that he would be their God, but instead they have chosen false gods. Because of this, God is allowing their destruction to come. And once again, Jeremiah is instructed not to pray for them because God will not listen. Chapter 12 is kind of reminiscent of Habakkuk with me. Uh, Jeremiah asks God how much longer the people must endure. um, And God actually answers directly back. Unfortunately, God's answer is, oh, Jeremiah, it's going to get way worse. (laughs) So, and like, that that sounds like I'm making a joke. No, that's pretty much, that's pretty much God's answer is like, it's as bad as it is right now. Just, just you wait. Um, Yeah. It makes sense that Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He has to, he has to see a bunch of stuff that really sucks. Uh, in chapter 13, we get a really interesting metaphor. Uh, Jeremiah is commanded. This is the one I think of the things that Jeremiah is commanded to act out. This is probably the most interesting kind of odd mm-hmm. one. Uh, he buries, he is told to bury loin, a loincloth by the Euphrates, which is one of the major rivers of the region. It's also be pretty far away. So it's kind of interesting that he takes a mm-hmm. break out of his ministry and goes to the Euphrates. Um, and he digs it up many days later. And when he digs it up, it's been spoiled and unusable. And God is like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do to Judah. So that's <laughs> gross. That's a bummer. Not cool. Which also must have been a hard thing for him to say. He's he's already like being picked on by the other prophets saying like, you're not a real prophet. And then they're asking like, what are you doing, Jeremiah? He's like, uh, going to the Euphrates, going to bury a loincloth. And they're like, ah, man, that's a bummer. What a guy. What, what a guy. What that Jeremiah. What an oddball. Um, and then at this point, Jeremiah tells the people that their attitude of drunkenness is going to be dashed by the Lord. That's kind of how the chapter mm. 12 ends. Uh, chapter 13 ends with another warning of exile. And Jeremiah's emotion for his people is on full display. In chapter uh, verse 17, he says, but if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My mm. eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Um, so again, Nathan, like you brought up just a little bit ago, you just see like the heart that Jeremiah has for his mm-hmm. people, the heart that God has for his people, and they are just not going to listen. Uh, chapter 14 continues on with the with the telling of the destruction of Jerusalem, and it includes a section where God makes it clear that the lying prophets saying that everything is just is going to be just fine, uh, they're not going to be okay. <laughs> like they're also going to be a part of this. It is also interesting that you see just in the towards the latter days of Judah. The false prophets becomes a really big problem mm-hmm. where they're and their and their false prophecies are not, you know, it's not. Don't worry, God's not real. It's like, hey, no, no, I, hey, I talked to God. Jeremiah's off his rocker. Everything's going to be just fine. It's kind of yeah. they're just telling the people what they want to hear as opposed to what God would have them say. Um, there's a there's a modern parallel there, I'm sure. So whatever, however you want to fill that in, but I think sometimes mm-hmm. that's a trap that we can fall into. Uh, and then chapter 15. 
leaves us off for now before we get into Nathan's section. Uh, it's a real bummer note. We're reminded that God will not relent from this disaster, and Jeremiah complains to God that the people are relentlessly against him now. Uh, essentially, we're just kind of left on this idea of the nation is heading towards, they're, they're driving off a cliff, and Jeremiah yeah. sees it, and there's nothing he can do about it. So, like I said, listeners, kind of a depressing week that we're in this week. Um, before we jump over to uh, continue on in Jeremiah, I do want to take a second to uh, remind you to, hey, you know, if you haven't left a five-star review yet, you can go ahead and do that on uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify are the two where it actually really helps us out. Um, and then on Apple Podcasts, you can actually leave a written review. And if you do that, we will read it on air just because we like to live to give our listeners a shout out. But yeah, help mm-hmm. f- reviews, they help a ton. Uh, it just helps get the podcast out there to more people and to continue to grow this community of people reading the Bible together. Um, so, Nathan, how's how's Jeremiah doing in chapter 16? Yeah, we pick back up on Jeremiah 16 on, um, shocker, a little bit of a downer. What? I know. And that's saying something for the book of Jeremiah, who's kind of, you know, the whole purpose is to, is to predict the impending doom coming to Israel. Obviously, we've talked a bit about that. So, um, but now we're even even in that context, this part is a little bit shocking to me. Um, it's funny when Evan, when you asked me to do the podcast, I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds awesome. And then I was like, OK, what are we reading? Jeremiah. And I was like, oh, OK. Ooh. And then I looked at my portion of it. I was like, man, you really you really saved the doozy. But let's jump right in. Chapter 16. Um, I'm just going to read verses one through five here. It says, then the word of the Lord came to me. You must not marry and have sons and daughters in this place. For this is what the Lord says about the sons and the daughters born in this land and about the women uh, who are their mothers and the men who are their fathers. They will die of deadly diseases. They will not be mourned or buried, but will be like the dung lying on the ground. They will perish by the sword and famine and their bodies will become the food for the birds and for the wild animals. For this is what the Lord says. Do not enter a house where there is a funeral meal. Do not go and mourn or show sympathy because I have withdrawn my blessing, my love, and my pity from this people, declares the Lord. And it's that last part that gets me. We have heard about this disaster that's coming and that that Jeremiah is predicting. But when you hear the words of the Lord and he says, I've withdrawn my pity from this people, that hits home because, you know, with, with our experience with God in the new covenant, he is full of everlasting kindness and full of sympathy. And obviously, to some extent, we have to understand that this strong language is used for a reason. This is, this is um, hyperbolic language to some extent, because we already know from past passages that God has loved his people with an everlasting love. So we know that he hasn't actually withdrawn his love from this people, but it's driving home this point um, that God's basically like, I, I like... You can't you can't feel sorry for these people right now. He's commanding Jeremiah, don't even mourn their deaths mm-hmm. um, because they have turned so far away and they won't um, turn back. God then goes to tell Jeremiah when people, when not why, but or, or if, but when people ask you, why have I brought this disaster on them? Um, you're basically supposed to tell them, uh, yeah, you remember your ancestors? Remember all the ones that continuously turned from me? Actually, yeah, you're worse than those ones. So it just starts off with a um, with a really big bummer, and that's got to hurt. Which is kind of a bummer coming out of the reign of King Josiah, because oh, you would man. you would think the people kind of crested up, yep. and then it's it seems like I don't know, it's it seems like for whatever reason, and maybe it's just because 
you know, got, and we were told that, hey, you're not supposed to have a king. Like, this isn't the way it goes. And then you mm-hmm. kind of see that the, as the king goes, so goes the nation. Yeah. When you have a great king, it seems like the people kind of latch on and worship the Lord. But the second that king is gone and it goes to bad kings, the people are more than willing to kind of just release and let it go. I mean, in, in fairness, this is what, is this like 15 years after Josiah died? I don't remember exactly when, but sometime yeah, is close to it. Yeah. Yeah. Sometime has passed, but still not enough to where everyone's dead from the reign of Josiah. Like this is clearly mm-hmm. some of the people who were alive during the reign of Josiah have uh, fallen away as well. So just a, just a bummer all around. It is a bummer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then the chapter kind of takes an emotional U-turn and I can hear the, the global sigh of relief for people Ooh. like, whoo, I could use some good news about this point. Um, but uh, it then it then goes into talk about how God will still eventually restore his people to the land he promises. In Jeremiah 16, verses 14 and 15, however the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, but instead it will be said, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them uh, to the land that I gave their ancestors. Basically, it's that it's that little message of hope in there that, yeah, bad bad days are coming for Israel. Again, there's like, there's really no turning point. At this point, you are literally seeing armies surround Israel. Um, it's really hard to deny that it's coming, but God is maintaining that promise. And I think this emotional back and forth that we get between um, the blessing and the curse, right? As Moses put it, the, the impending doom of Israel, as well as um, God's eventual restoration of his people, I think is one of the most important um, arcs to understand when reading the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that um, that I love about the entire, entire character arc is basically ever since God made a promise to Eve um, in the garden that you're going to leave the garden. You're going to be away from me. These bad things are going to happen. But one day I will I will bring a Messiah. I will bring from your offspring somebody that will return and restore you to me, to the garden. Um, I think that that's what causes you to turn the page at the end of Genesis, right? Or, or at the end of the, the creation story is like, oh, okay, like we're going to get back to God. Let's turn the page and see how that happens. And then you get into Israel and you get into all these bad things that are still happening to them. They're about to be taken over by the Babylonians, but God is still handing that, that, that promise over to them that, hey, these bad things are going to happen, but I will restore you to me one day. Yeah. One of the, I, I forgot where I heard this, but basically one of the promises of God is that life or history is a comedy. And, and what I mean by that is in the, um, in the, English class sense of the word. A comedy is a story where the characters start off in a good position and then something happens that brings them into a bad position. And then at the end of the story, it rises up. And you see like overarching, it's creation, good position, the fall, bad position, new heaven, new earth, back into a good position. So the whole Bible is one big comedy in that sense. Yeah. Um, it sounds so weird to say that because we have- Especially in the book of Jeremiah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but especially because we have a different meaning of the word comedy now. But you see this played out all throughout the scripture is that it's it's many comedies where it's they, they have these mm. upswings followed by downswings, always followed by an up. Like there's always these moments where God is giving mercy. He's giving, um, and like the upswing here would be the return from exile, yeah. uh, which is what he's talking about when he says- bringing them back out of the lands of the North. So yeah, it is an important reminder, even when we get to the darkest parts of the Old Testament, like you said, that that God is still 
with his people and still willing to give mercy, especially coming out of that last section. Yeah, read, it's where it's, just, it's so heavy. Oh, man. Yeah. And actually, kind of a fun fact, we're getting on a little bit of a tangent here. Um, I think that's okay for this podcast, oh, right? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, something that I learned from Hunter, who was on the podcast last week, um, that is maybe maybe my new favorite Bible fact um, is, you know, we're talking about the the starting in the good place with creation and um, God promising to bring Adam and Eve back into the garden. Uh, Hunter told me that when when Jesus is on the cross and he's talking to the um, the the thief who who repents and says like Lord remember me when you enter into your kingdom when he says truly I say to you today you will be with me in paradise that word paradise is the exact same word as garden so he's bringing that whole um, that whole arc to a close to say like today you will be back with me in the garden calling back into remembrance the whole purpose of of the the Torah the prophets everything that we're reading to bring people into an established relationship with God well I'm just learning new things all day today yeah I, I man. And, and man, I think about that. I'm like, man, that might be the biggest bummer that we've missed in translation from the Bible into English is if if we knew that Jesus says, today you will be with me in the garden, all of a sudden, all of these things click with us. And it's awesome. Cool fact, you know, fact credit to Hunter Shaw. Um, it's a good time. So um, we are then going to go into chapter 17 and we go into a long poem about placing your trust in God and in his strength and not the strength of men. Um, my favorite verse from this is chapter 17, verses 14. It says, heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved for you are the one I praise. Um, it's very reminiscent of the uh, of Matthew chapter eight, when the centurion asks Jesus to heal his servant and Jesus says, yeah, take me to your house. And the centurion says, um, I- I'm not worthy to have you under my roof, but if you speak the words, I know he will be healed. And Jesus marveled as, at his faith. Um, and it's just reminiscent of this, this extreme faith that Jeremiah says, like, heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. I feel like I want that. Uh, if I could ask for one thing on earth is like that, that kind of faith. I want that line tattooed on me, heal me, Lord, and I will be healed because you believe that the Lord is powerful. Um, I think that's really beautiful. At the end of chapter 17, uh, it talks about another warning Jeremiah has where he pleads for the people to return to God's Sabbaths in the streets. Um, Spoiler alert, they do not. They still do not do that. Um, Oh, classic. I know, classic Israel. Um, Yeah, chapter 18 then tells the story of a potter. um, And God uses this potter to send another warning to Israel. Um, And even though it's a warning, it's encouraging to me um, because it still seems so kind. This is Jeremiah 18, um, verses 1 through 12. It says, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house and there I will give you my message. So I went to the potter's house and I saw him working on a wheel. But the pot was uh, shaping from the clay. The pot shaping the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, uh, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hands of a potter, so you are in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, or destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster that I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good that I had intended for it. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. 
but they will reply, it's no use. We will continue on our own plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our hearts. What an absolutely beautiful warning. Um, of, their, of their evil hearts, it says. Of their evil hearts. Not what did e- I say? Not e- oh, just hearts. I was like, it's, oh. it's even worse oh, yeah, than you made it out hearts. to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this is such a, such a beautiful warning because God's saying, even in the midst of this, like literally, again, armies are surrounding Israel. All of them have been... Uh, to some extent, they're ruled by Babylon already. This, there's this impending disaster, and and God is still saying, "Hey, even now, you are like clay to me. Even now, I could fix this if you repent and turn to me. I will restore you and uh, and and to this nation that's being built up, Babylon." He's like, he's saying, like, if if. Well, I mean, spoiler alert, Babylon does get destroyed, but it's like, if they, if they don't repent and turn to me, I will destroy them. Um, In yeah. fairness, we spoiled that with the statue story. I mean, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's true. Everybody's like, man, I'm just, I'm just, the spoilers are going crazy right now. And, and fun fact for any of you guys, Evan is not a man who likes spoilers. I learned that last night. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's the worst. Um, but yeah, uh, a really beautiful, a beautiful warning, which is an interesting thing to think about. Uh, We then move into chapter 35, where you read about a family in Israel. This is really interesting to me. And this particular family um, was commanded by their ancestor. So this wasn't wasn't God, this wasn't Moses or a prophet. Um, But they're commanded by their ancestor not to drink wine, um, not to own land, uh, and just basically to be nomads in the kingdom of Israel, and they will prosper. And here's the crazy part to me. They obey it. They listened to their ancestors. For a long time. For a long time. I don't know. I don't know the exact uh, amount of years, but you know, it's not, it's not like your grandfather that said this. This, this goes back a little ways. Um, and it, it just goes to show you that the, the kingdom of Israel, we can read these stories and just kind of be like, yeah, they're just a bunch, bunch of idiots that can't keep any of the rules straight. No, this is a really disciplined people. Like these people avoided owning land. They lived in tents for generations. They didn't drink any wine. Um, and, and it's got to make you just kind of go like, come on, you guys have the discipline to obey these laws, um, but you're just not doing that. Um, and it, it does say like God blesses that family that obeyed their ancestor uh, at the end of that passage. And I thought that was really interesting um, to me when I was reading that I was almost more frustrated with them. I'm like, come on guys, like, like you obey that guy, but you're not going to obey Moses or the God that brought you out of Egypt. It's just a little frustrating to me. Are they, are they said to be idolatrous for sure? I don't remember. They're not, but I'm, I mean, I've kind of, I've kind of always imagined that they're not, but maybe, maybe I'm just like reading into it because God blesses them for that. I kind of imagine like that's they're true. probably worshiping God. We, we but. could give them the benefit of the doubt. I find it really hard to give Israel at this that's stage fair. the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> totally fair. I don't know. It's, it's almost kind of an extension of like taking the, uh, and when I say extreme here, I don't mean in a bad way, but it's taking the honor your father and mother commandment yeah. to the extreme. Yeah, that's true. Where it's, it's okay, this has been commanded. We're going to honor that. And it goes forward generations after that. So it, it is something to be respected, even if it's a little bit like, whoa, that's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. I know, like, I mean, maybe the Lord will work in my heart in amazing ways, but I love my parents. I have an amazing relationship with them. If they were like, Nathan, live in a tent for the rest of your life, I'm going to be like, I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, Yeah, that's a tough one, but really, really cool story um, in there. 
Uh, we then go into chapter 49, and this is a brutal one. Okay, this is the downswing again. Uh, buckle up, folks. Um, God starts calling out individual cities in chapter 49 and telling them of their downfall. And they get re- he gets really specific about this and like starts calling out like things that these cities and towns are known for. It would be a bit like me going like, hey, Bellevue, you with all of your money, you think you're going to survive this? No, like Everett, you think you've already survived some crazy things? Um, nope, it's going to get a lot worse. I can say that because I live in Everett and when, trust me. When I say? make fun of Everett, it's just mean-spirited apparently. But you, <laughs> you as a dweller there. Uh, listen, as a... In my six-month tenure of uh, of living in Everett, I feel like I've already survived some crazy things. I love Everett. I think it's a beautiful city. I think there's some amazing culture. But, you know, it's a little scary. But chapter 49 basically uh, takes this and makes makes things really personal. It's almost like God is getting more specific with his warnings. He starts with the whole nation, and he's, he's just like, hey, um, you guys are all going to be taken over. And then he's like, okay, they're not getting it. Let's call it individual cities and see what happens. But um, we are then going to take a break. Uh, from Jeremiah and move over to Second Kings, and I and I like this. I think one of the best transitions is to say, meanwhile, like <laughs> uh, like over here, it's interesting to think about Jeremiah, like like speaking to the people and telling them of of all of these like terrible things that are going to happen, and then you get to jump over and see all of the crazy things happening in politics, like. Guys, are you really not like you're watching all this crazy stuff happening? How are you not getting this? I feel like if there's one lesson for the kings to learn in their history, it's like, hey, maybe may, just throwing it out there. Maybe listen to the prophets. Like, <laughs> maybe when the prophets are telling you something, pay attention. Like, I know, usually, but nope, no, they never do. You, you would think at the point where I mean, this is a little spoiler, but we're, we're about to talk about it. You'd think at the point where the prophet is just like. Babylon is going to take you over. And then like two days later, the Babylonian king comes and kills your king and he like puts a new king in place. But you'd think it would cause people to ask some questions. But we move over to the death of King Jehoiakim. Um, and and this, this is about to get complicated, folks, but let, let's just... Let, <laughs> Let's just uh, let's settle the settle the confusion here. If, if you remember, listeners, a few months ago, there was a point where there were four kings, two from Israel, two from Judah, that each had two names, uh, and they shared the two names. So it was two names for four kings. This is almost as confusing as that part. It gets real. It gets real hard. So we have King Jehoiakim. That's with an M uh, that you guys talked about last week. Um, we are going to be talking about Jehoiakim with an N um, this week that happens to be his son. And you got to be like, all right, come on, guys. Could you like name your kids something that doesn't sound exactly like your name? Um, it might not sound exactly like even, that. Even just like Jehoiakim Jr. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's Jehoiakim like the second. Just easier. keep the M. It's just keep easier. the M, add the junior. It would be way easier. Yeah, but we do move over to the death of uh, King Jehoiakim after a failed rebellion against Babylon. Basically, uh, Jehoiakim gets, um, gets sick and tired of... Um, of being ruled by Babylon. And so he goes over to Egypt, who he had already betrayed in previous years and says like, oh, actually, let's stage a queue. Let's rebel against um, Babylon. It does not go very well. Um, This specific chapter doesn't talk about how he dies. It just says that um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and and binds him up. um, And then it says, and Jehoiakim rested with his ancestors. (laughs) And one one thing led to another and Jehoiakim left with his (laughs) father. Basically just uh, glosses that over. Later Jewish historians, Josephus, um, so this this is quite a bit later, but he... 
Um, he writes down that it's pretty dark, but Jehoiakim was bound and thrown over the city walls and left without a burial. And this would be in accordance with um, Jeremiah's prophecy earlier in Jeremiah 22. Um, it doesn't talk about that in either of these chapters, but that's what Jewish tradition would have taught happened to Jehoiakim. Um, he is then su succeeded by Jehoiakim, his son. Um, his reign does not go well at all. Surprise. Uh, yeah, surprise. It really does not does not work out. He reigns for a total of three months and 10 days. And I was laughing. I couldn't help but chuckle a little bit about this earlier. I came in to talk to Evan earlier this week. Um, he still manages to make a name for himself as a king who did evil in the sight of the Lord. And I'm like, my guy. Like you had three months. You couldn't like, make it. How, how did you manage? How did you have the time to mess it up this badly? But in Jeremiah 22, um, 24 through 30, God has some pretty harsh words to say about Jehoiakim. Jeremiah 22, uh, 24 through 30. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my hand. I would still pull you off. I will deliver you into the hands of those who want to kill you, those who who you fear, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the Babylonians. I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country where neither of you was born, and you will both die. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. As this man Jehoiakim... Uh, uh, is this man Jehoiakim a despised, broken pot, an object no one wants? Why will he and his children be hurled out, cast into a land that they do not know? O land, O land, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. Ooh, that is harsh. And I believe Jesus is, because Jesus is not descended from Jehoiakim. I so I believe even in this sense, I, I believe so. I, I okay. should be careful with that. But I want to say if you're going through the genealogies, it splits before that. But I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to, while, while you talk, I'm going to go confirm I didn't just spout off some heresy there and we'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> okay. Some minor heresy. Cool. Uh, he's going to fact check us. Um, that is that is an unbelievably harsh package, uh, a, a harsh harsh passage to give to a dude who is 18 years old and only reigns three months. I don't know what exactly he did other than obviously didn't turn from the ways of the evil ways of his father's. Um, yeah, it's not a good time. Now, he doesn't get removed from the throne until the next verse, and you guys are going to talk about that next week. Um, uh, but, sorry, I lost my place in my notes here. Um, many scholars believe that that the reason why Jehoiakim only reigned for about three months, everybody's like, man, what happened to this guy? Uh, many people believe that Nebuchadnezzar, after killing his father Jehoiakim, uh, feared that his son would want to avenge the death of his father, and that's why he moved so, quack, so quickly in... Um, uh, dispatching him. Sorry, listeners, just confirmed. Uh, Jesus is from the line of Jeconiah, who is another son of Josiah, who does not uh, take over. So there you go. I believe that uh, I did not spout off heresy there. Gotcha. Very nice. No no heresy this week. Um, yeah, but anyways, uh, no matter what happened, Nebuchadnezzar feared that Jehoiakim would um, would want to avenge the death of his father and continue his rebellion um, against Nebuchadnezzar. So he goes and he takes um, takes Jehoiakim captive into uh, Babylon. He doesn't die. He just gets taken away. Um, and he replaces Jehoiakim with Jehoiakim's uncle, 
Zedekiah. And at this point, I, I just wrote down in my notes, uh, hot potato throne. That's, that's kind of- <laughs> No, you be king. That, that's kind of what uh, what it feels like a little bit like, oh, who's got it now? Uh, you, okay, all right. It's not it's not going well for the kings of Judah at this point. Well, and just like hot potato, if you hold on to it for more than a second, it just ends badly for you. <laughs> it's, so it's it a really does. Uh, it's a bummer. All right. We are going to spend the rest of our time today in Jeremiah, starting in chapters 23, where Jeremiah compares the kings of Israel and Judah uh, to shepherds who have scattered the sheep among the nations. Um, and then he moves into one of my favorite messianic prophecies. This was this was the part that I was excited to talk about um, this week. Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 6. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who will tend, who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil that you have done, declares the Lord. I will myself gather a remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back into their pasture, where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them. And they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is his name, which he will be called the Lord, our righteous savior. Um, I don't know if it's, if it's, uh, not super clear there, but that's Jesus. That's Jesus that well, he's talking about. The uh, our Lord, the righteous Savior, is could very much be a translation of Joshua, which is Jesus's. Yeah, Yeshua, which would be Jesus' name, because it's our God Savior. Sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it, it all it all it all kind of fits together there. It does. Um, and what a, what a what a beautifully constructed portion of Scripture, even from the shepherd language, kind of drawing um, drawing back from your memory the stories of King David, the uh, a good king who shepherded the people well. Um, and then a promise of a Messiah from his line. And it's, it's just a bold prophecy. You've got to love it. Um, and it's just another one of those examples that the whole Bible is pointing to Jesus. And it's a really cool thing. Um, Jeremiah then critiques the prophets. Uh, so it isn't just the kings and the rulers who are bad. We talked about false prophets kind of becoming a growing problem in the land of Israel and are leading people astray, which I feel like when you start calling out the prophets, that's when you know things are really bad. Yeah. Like in history, even in the in the judges and even in the earlier parts of kings, you know, the the prophets were kind of the guard dogs of, of God's word, drawing the kings back into obedience. But um, when, when you start calling out the prophets, you know that it's getting pretty bad, even to the point where God compares, um, uh, compares the prophets in the lands they rule to Sodom. Um, and it just goes to show the complete corruption of Israel. Um, but yeah, they are lying to the Lord's people and, and using the Lord's name in vain. And Jeremiah is warning the people not to listen to them. Uh, chapter 24, we then move to after Jehoiakim's uncle, uh, or after Jehoiakim's exile, his uncle takes over for God or for Jehoiakim and God speaks to Jeremiah, um, by showing, by, by telling an interesting story. He shows him, um, a, two baskets, uh, two piles of figs inside the basket. And one pile of the figs is really ripe and, and desirable to eat. And the other pile is rotten to the point where it can't, uh, it can't be eaten. And God, God basically says, uh, that the exiles from Judah, the ones that went with into exile with Jehoiakim are like the ripe figs and God will watch over them in their exile and bring them back into their land. 
Um, but uh, on the other hand, he compares the new rulers, uh, Jehoiakim's uncle, to the rotten figs that aren't even good for eating. Um, and at this point, it seems like things just keep on getting worse for for Jeremiah. Let's just talk about this for a second. He's on his uh, he's on his third king in four months. And basically God hands him a vision that's like, yeah, you know, those, those other two kings, like this one's worse. Like these, these ones aren't even good to watch over um, in their exile. I'm, I'm completely, uh, completely abandoning them. It just, it's more of a bummer for Jeremiah. Uh, chapter 29, after the bad news um, uh, the, about the new king, Jeremiah is told to write a letter to Jeho- Jehoiakim in his exile. Um, and, uh, this is, this is a letter that King Jeremiah writes to the Kings in exile. This is what he says. I told you, I told you this was going to happen. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but, but really, but, but <laughs> really you can't help but wonder if he's, he's, he's writing this letter with a little bit of the attitude of, ah, Jehoiakim, 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 Jehoiakim. Um, that would be really hard to say. I just said that out loud for the first time. That's like saying I'm, that name I'm three times fast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, no, but he he's commanded to write a letter to the rulers um, that have been taken into exile. And, uh, and this is what he says. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give them to your daughters in marriage so that uh, they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper too. Um, now that that's a hard message to get. Um, if you've just been carried away into exile and you, and you're just hoping to return home, um, it's really hard to get a message that says settle down. Like you're going to be there for a long time. Yep. Um, and and even to the point he predicts later that it's it's going to be a seventy year um, exile and and all of the people that are there. It's pretty much guaranteed that you're never going to return to your land. It gives at the same time hope for your children that they're going to return one day. Um, but, but that's a hard message to hear and even harder to, to think about, you know, you're angry with these people and you're living among them and you're basically a captive. Um, and he's saying, pray for their prosperity. Like that would be an extremely difficult thing to, to pray for, even if it's, um, if, if he's saying like, pray for their prosperity, because if they do well, you will do well. That makes it a little bit easier. Um, but at the same time, that's a really hard prayer to pray. Um, when you've just been carried into exile. Well, it's kind of a reminder too, that. God is explaining here that this isn't like some attack from, you know, Satan or anything like these. I've used the Babylonians. This is my deal. And so you're going to submit to them because (laughs) because I've I've, I've given them power over you. Um, But yeah, like you said, it's just, it would be a very hard thing to hear for, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it also um, is another example, you know, when you hear when you hear Jesus say, you know, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that's always been the heart of God. And it's really easy to read these stories. And and, and again, we, we talk about this all the time, but God seems very angry in the Old Testament and he seems very gracious and loving in the New Testament. And no, he's he has been the same God yesterday, today, and always. And you get to see that same heart of, of pray for those who persecute you um, in this time. I think that's really cool. It's a great point. Um, yeah, he continues... Um, on in Jeremiah 29 verses eight and nine. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets or the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. 
<clears throat> like, come on. I don't know if it's a good thing for me to think this, but man, that just feels good. It's it's just such a, uh, oh man, that had to feel so good for Jeremiah to write, especially after just being abused by some of these prophets saying that he's not the good prophet to, to have the word from the Lord and write that. And he's being vindicated because all of his prophecies have come true to this point. So people better be listening up, although, you know, maybe, maybe they will. I'm sure maybe they'll they listen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure they're going to listen to everything that he says, but it's got to feel good to say, um, it's also an interesting passage when it says, do not listen to the dreams that you encourage them to have. Um, I think it's, it's a reminiscent of that, uh, People, uh, people who tickle their ears. Uh, you know, we have false prophets um, coming that just tell people what they want to hear, and the and these prophets were doing exactly that. Um, but yeah, that that feels a little bit good. Uh, and now we're here, Evan. Uh, we we've come to the passage at last. We've been waiting for this. We've talked about it a little bit this week. But the famous and or infamous uh, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Um, this is what it says. This is what the Lord says to the people in exile. Um, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, I want to be sensitive here for a second, because I'm, we're, we're about to talk about a lot of people's, you know, morning, morning coffee mug, a lot of embroidered pillows that are out here. Um, and, and let's just be clear. We know that that through God's word, his eventual plan is to restore his people from uh, to himself. Uh, the plan is to prosper us in the coming kingdom when Jesus comes and rules for an eternity. However, I think it can be a frustration to some people that some, some people in our modern um, Gentile Christianity can take this verse and be like, ah, God is going to prosper me while I'm here on earth. Right now. Right, right now. I, you know, we're talking to, we're talking to you, Jennifer, looking for the deals at Target. He's not looking to save you. Whoa, specific. From your, from <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer, there's one Jennifer right now listening in Target and she's just like, whoa, she's like, whoa, whoa, man. what did I do? Listen, if you're saving 20% on that, uh, on that neon green t-shirt, that's not God prospering you today. Now, not to be clear, God does prosper his people and he does bless those who bless him, bless him and curse those who who curse him and um so so all of that to say uh god's plan is to prosper his people even you today um we we definitely believe that and we look forward to the coming reign of jesus christ the problem comes when you take this uh this passage from a very specific context and and apply it to you um today so anyways there's there's jeremiah 29 11 um, we all talk about it we all love it uh it's a little bit of a controversy but here we are uh, the chapter continues with warnings against p- false prophets um, and even defends Jeremiah as the true prophet. Um, and God says that the prophets will be brutally killed by Nebuchadnezzar. Ouch, that is a bummer. Um, chapters 30 and the first half of 31 uh, continue this message of hope um, with a long poem from the people in exile um, that although their situation is terrible, that God has not abandoned him and he will restore them back to their own land um, and th- where they will be his people and he will be their God. And um, I thought about kind of uh, just talking about this a little bit more, but I do not think I could wrap up this message of hope uh, possibly any better than just to read the passage. I think it's um, absolutely beautiful. We're going to read Jeremiah 31 verses 7 through 14. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. 
Shout from the foremost of the nations. Make your praise heard and say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind, the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations, proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy in the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord. The grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, uh, the young of the flocks and herds, they will be like well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then the young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. Um, and that wraps up our reading for, for this week. And, um, you know, you can't, you can't help but feel a little bit of whiplash going from the, the, the depths of despair of Jeremiah to e even this, this ending beautiful poem of hope and, and prophecy for God to, to return them to the land. Um, but I think, uh, in, inside of that confusion lies probably my biggest takeaway from, um, from this reading, and we talked about it a little bit earlier, it's that even in the darkest times, God's eternal purpose is to to restore his people into a permanent and everlasting covenant relationship with him. And it's easy to get lost in these passages and be like, okay, why is this important to me? It feels a little bit like a history lesson, and it is to some extent. Um, but to know and read the Bible through the lens that the, that the purpose of this story is God turning an evil and broken people, even in us and restoring uh, them to himself um, as we know eventually in Christ Jesus. Um, that concludes our reading for this week. No, it's beautiful. Like you said, there's not a better way that you could have chosen <laughs> to end this week for sure. Uh, but listeners, we did have one king die this week. So we're yes. going to update the tier list. Let's rank some king. Okay, so good old Jehoiakim, who is, mm. well, we're almost at the end of the tier list. We only have two more after him. Uh, oh, sorry, listeners. I uh, Whilst Nathan was talking, I did some more deep diving. I lied to you. This, I'm just taking you on a whole whiplash thing right now. Uh, <laughs> Je snap, snap. Jeconiah is the New Testament name of Jehoiakim. So, oh. so uh, Jesus does come from that line. So the prophecy then would be referring to specifically the political entity of the kingdom of Israel, not gotcha. not God sitting on the or not Jesus sitting on the eternal throne. Uh, but another interesting fun fact I found out that Zerubbabel is in that line. I didn't realize oh. he's so Jehoiakim. Zerubbabel is spoilers for a few weeks from now, uh, but he leads the first return of the Jews into Jerusalem. Uh, and so he is actually, basically he has a claim to be king if he wanted to. So he's the governor of the of the province, but you know, fun facts all around. He was chosen for a reason. Yeah, basically. exactly. Yeah. Okay. So Jehoiakim, uh, I don't think 
this isn't going to be a controversial ranking. Mm-hmm. I think he's pretty solidly in the bad category. Yep. Um, he doesn't do anything like exceptionally horrible to go into the worst, um, but he also doesn't do literally anything that would make him be even thought even make us even think about putting him up into like okay and certainly not into good. No, absolutely not. And it's interesting looking at his reign. It's like yeah, they 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 were all pretty bad, you know. Um, but we kind of rank them in the in the moral bad category, and then there's also just like the the bad as a king. Like when we talk about yeah. his downfall. It was basically like he started out with Egypt, but then he betrayed Egypt and went back to Babylon. And then he tried to betray Babylon and go back to Egypt. And Nebuchadnezzar got fed up and had him killed, basically. I mean, honestly, now that you mention it, I could put him in the worst just because like like you said, like usually we He's kind a of- a terrible ruler. Right. Because we put it like we, we usually, but we have factored in like a little bit of rulership before, but like he does directly lead to the fall of the yeah, destruction of Jerusalem. Basically because, because he gets like, he gets frustrated and he, he becomes flippant and starts betraying the, the powers that be. Oh man. Nathan, you're you're the guest, so I'm going to give you the final say. Do you want to put Jehoiakim in the bad or the worst category? Oh man. I mean, you, you, you brought it up, but- he didn't commit child sacrifice. <laughs> and I feel like that's the main thing that it's just like, you are at the bottom of the barrel. So I feel like uh, we we put still put him in the, in the bad category. But if you were to rank him purely based on um, just the civil ruling of the people, uh, is just kind of the worst. He would be the, the Andrew Johnson of yeah. Kings of Judah. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, man, there you go. Um, well, you know, we just talked about the Lord's mercy this week and Nathan just had some nice mercy on Jehoiakim there. So he makes it, he saves it from going to the bottom of the tier my, list. My thumb was hovering. It was about to go down, but it stayed right in the middle Ooh, for, nice, for you. Uh, nice gladiator yeah, reference. Yeah. I like it. Uh, okay. Last segment of the day. Let's talk about what we learned today. Okay. So for me, uh, I just love the, but but if not part of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story, um, or as the song goes, even if you don't, I think that's a famous worship song right now or a Christian song. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, the idea of having faith in the Lord and what they're saying in that moment is God can deliver us from this, but even if he doesn't, he is worthy of our worship and mm-hmm. he is worthy of being glorified and it is right for us to die refusing to sacrifice that. And I think sometimes we have a really hard time with that aspect in our lives where we know that God can deliver us. We know that God can heal. Um, We know that God can do all these different things. Um, But how often do we come to God in prayer with the attitude, but, but even if not, that doesn't change the fact that you are worthy of worship. And Mm -hmm. that uh, the way I heard it years ago, it was in a, um, it was a, a children's pastor posted this online and it was kind of my mantra when my dad had cancer, but he, his, his daughter was diagnosed with cancer. Um, and his like mantra was God is good. My daughter has cancer. Mm-hmm. And those two statements don't contradict each other. Man. And I think it's just, it's, it was such a powerful way of phrasing it that I, I read this like 20 years ago and it's 20, 20 is probably a stretch, but like 15 years ago. Um, and it's stuck with me ever since as, you know, God is good. This really painful thing is happening. And those two statements don't contradict each other. Yeah. Yeah, man. It, it's very reminiscent of, I think it's Job that says, uh, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Was that Job? Yeah, it I'm is Job. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. Um, for me, um, I think my takeaway from this reading is uh, even in the uh, absolute worst, well, one of the worst parts of Israel's history up until the very end where um, they're about to be taken away into captivity, God is still offering a chance to repent. Um, and that's not something that's completely 
um, set aside for people in the new covenant. That was in the old covenant as well, that God's heart has always been to restore his people to him. Um, and, and it is really easy to, to think these days like, oh, I've sinned too much. Oh, I've done um, too much to betray God. But um, but this, this reading is just a beautiful example that um, even until the very end, God is pleading with his ple- people, please return to me so that I can, I can restore you into a covenant relationship with myself. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely beautiful. And like you said, it's just important to remember that sometimes we have, I've even had someone say this to me recently of like, well, yeah, there's the old Testament God and the new Testament yeah. God. And like, we just forget that. No, it's, it's He's one God. Same. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of let's read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry of the Grove church, Uh, You can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And you know what? Thank you all so much for listening. Nathan, thanks for joining me. Yeah, happy to be here. Have a great week, everybody.